Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we are continuing our exploration of beautiful and inspiring relationships in the Bible. And today we are going to learn of one that has a number of connectors, another of different relationships that are a part of it, and that is Esther and Mordecai. Now the story of Esther is quite compelling and very unusual. This is only the second book of the Bible that is named for a woman. And this story was considered so important that it was preserved even in a male-dominated culture, that perhaps all of us might learn and grow from what happens to Esther. And so what has happened to Esther is that our story is located historically in the aftermath of the Babylonian exile, when the superpower of its day, Babylon, came and laid siege to the holy city of Jerusalem and conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. They destroyed the temple. And as was part of their colonial practice, they withdrew back to their own homeland, the upper echelons of society. They took the political, the socioeconomical, and the religious elite classes and brought them back to their home country. And there they kind of served and lived, not as native citizens, they didn't have all the rights of native, per, of native Babylonians, but there they were and they were kind of indoctrinated, hoping to have them become part of the system that allowed Babylon to flourish. Esther is now living in the post-Babylonian world of Persia. Persia rose and conquered Babylon, and King Cyrus of Persia was the very first to tell the people living in exile that they could go home that they could return to the promised land, and he even equipped them, empowered them, and paid for them to rebuild their temple. But some stayed, and that's where we find Esther. Some never returned to their homeland. It was certainly a far journey, and they had had children, in some cases grandchildren, that were born in exile, and so they remained. And the fact that Esther is here tells us that her family must have been one of those privileged groups for Babylon would not have paid any attention to a commoner and would not have gone through all the trouble to relocate them to their capital. So we know that Esther comes from a background that is not normative, but here she is living as a second-class citizen in a country. And notice that the story implies that she has already achieved great <coughs> triumph over the adverse situation that she finds herself in. She is the queen of Persia. So how did that happen? Well, that happened because, and you should read this, this is not a very long book of the Bible, and I promise you it's very interesting. In fact, you could probably read it today while you're waiting for fireworks. But anyway, you could enjoy this story, and the story, to just kind of catch us all up, happens such as this. Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, got angry with his wife, the queen, and so he decided that she was no longer going to be queen, that he needed a new queen. So he did what everybody thought he should do and hold, held a beauty pageant to see who would be the next Miss Persia. And as he did this, they brought all of the eligible, beautiful maidens of the land, and Esther was brought before him. So this tells us a couple of things. One, 
that are kind of judging women solely based upon their attraction, attractiveness, and two, that Esther looks the same as Persians. This is not a racially diverse culture that we are experiencing here. These are all a group of people that look basically the same. What makes them distinctive is their religious practices, or perhaps in the case of God's people, that they have some peculiar practices and particularities about clothing, such as they wouldn't wear a cotton blend. But other than that, they tend to be just like everybody else. And sure, they have some languages that are distinctive, but back then people often spoke more than one language and they were incredibly lingual. But here, she has been able to rise to the second highest position in the palace. She is the queen of the reigning mega power in their world. It would be like having her become the first lady or the wife of the prime minister. This is the position that she holds in Persia. But something terrible has happened, even as she has triumphed over adversity and found incredible success on a world scale. But there is an enemy of her people. Haman has used political machinations to be empowered that through royal edict, a day will come when everyone in the provinces and throughout the territories of Persia will have the opportunity to do something truly horrific. They are empowered on one day to kill their Jewish neighbors and to do it with impunity. And so Mordecai, having realized what is about to happen, and all of the Jews outside of the palace living in exile, they are distraught. And he needs to get a message to Esther. He needs her to know, well, who is Mordecai? Mordecai is Esther's cousin. But her parents had died. And so being an older cousin, he chose to raise her as his adoptive daughter. And so their connections are kind of clouded. He is both her kinsman, but he is also acting as her father and mentor. And now he is in a position to ask her to do something radical and unparalleled. So he puts on sackcloth and ashes, which are a biblical way of telling everybody that you're in mourning. For those of you from a deeply southern background, this used to be when you were in mourning and wearing black for a prolonged period of time. For those of you that are from New York, you know that that's just a fashion statement all year round. But for those of us that have a different background, then this would be the southern equivalent of wearing black. And so she hears that he is acting this way. And she loves him and she cares for him. So notice that she actually sends him clothing. Here, let me send you some nice clothing so that you don't have to walk around in sackcloth. It's not comfortable. It was meant to be uncomfortable. Uh, but he won't take it. He needs her to realize the gravitas of the situation. And so they have to speak through emissary because she has become so privileged and powerful that he can no longer have direct access to her. That through messages and through verbal communication, it's like playing telephone, she has to get messages to him and get messages back through the eunuchs that are appointed to serve her or other servants. And in the midst of these exchanges, this is what we learn. Mordecai wants her to go before the king. But in Persia, you couldn't just go before the king. To go into where his throne room was, you had to be invited. And if you weren't invited, then you were going to die. The only hope you had was if out of mercy or perhaps great curiosity, the king extended his scepter to you. 
If he did not, then you would have been struck down by the guards that flanked his throne. And Esther recognizes what Mordecai is asking her to do. And she tells him, you know the law, I know the law, everyone knows the law. But this isn't just about what is required of me as a queen of Persia. This is about the reality of the situation. I am the queen, but I have not been called before the king for 30 days. It's been a month since he has wanted to see me. And now, out of nowhere, you want me to go before him and hope that seeing me will be enough? She recognizes that this could be a death sentence for her. That before she could ever say anything to help her people, that she could get struck down. And then would she have died for nothing? And so Mordecai says to her, in a way that sometimes only those close to us can do, he says to her, maybe this is why you're here. You have been granted unparalleled power, position, and authority for our people. You are the queen of the reigning superpower. You have the king's ear and attention like no one else. Maybe that is so because you can make a difference. He is telling her that his life and the lives of all of their people are at stake. People that she has never met, but to whom she is united by covenant from Mount Sinai. And he encourages her to step out in faith, to do what she can do, recognizing that it could be in vain, recognizing that it is not without great personal cost and sacrifice. He asks her to do this. And he says to her, if you won't, don't for a second think that God won't find another way to save us. But you will have lost your opportunity. You who have been given so much, whether it came from above or from the earth, you have more than any of us. Use it to save us. And she decides to do just that. And she reverts to what she knows. She goes back to her spiritual practices. She asks him to help her to get all of the Jews to hold a fast, to prepare themselves, to purify themselves, and to truly rely entirely on God. She is going to go before the king of Persia, having not eaten or drunk for three days. And all of the people will be united in that endurance, supporting her wherever they may be. And they do it. Mordecai is determined to do what she has asked. Now, I'm not going to spoil the story for you. And the tale of Esther isn't even at the pinnacle of how good it's going to get. So I hope that you will read it and see all that she still has to go through. She's a sharp woman. And she has a lot that she's still going to do. But let's go back for a second and recognize that this is a day when our attention is drawn in many different places. We're here in church, in worship, because it is important to us to gather together as the body of Christ. It is important for us to come to honor and glorify God. It is important for us to hallow out this time on this day. But this is also a day when people all over this nation are celebrating independence. They're celebrating that through hundreds of years of sacrifice and sustaining, this country exists as a place where people like us can worship openly, 
We have not had to hide ourselves in caves as the early Christians did. We are in the center of downtown Crozet, boldly proclaiming to anybody on the internet and in presence here that we are here as servants of Jesus Christ. And for that, we are grateful. But it reminds us that people had to make decisions and use what they had, their power, their positions, their authority, in order to make things happen. Now, as we think about independence today, this is also a day that was a turning point for those people known as Methodists. While it had humble beginnings back in Oxford, England, with a number of small gatherings from a few Christians who wanted to go on to holiness and how they lived their lives outside of Sunday worship, things really changed when the colonies declared their independence. And that's not always a story that we hear. But this is what happened. When the colonies decided that they no longer wanted to be bound to the English king, the monarch, and the British Empire, when they declared that they were severing that tie, whether it be to have their own rights or to not pay their taxes, however you want to interpret that, when they decided to do that, the king decided to retaliate. The king, who was not just the head of the state, but the head of the church in the Church of England, determined that he would cause suffering in this new beginning. So he withdrew all of the Anglican priests that were here in the colonies. He told them to come back. And they had a choice. All of those clergy that had been serving people as they plowed new lives, as they gave birth to their children in a foreign land, as they tried to make their way in a world that was far beyond anything they had ever seen or imagined, could they abandon those people? The king wanted to strip them of their ability to receive the sacraments like communion and baptism. The king wanted to make them hurt and yearn for worship and for the gifts of leadership of clergy. And each Anglican priest had to make a choice. Do I stay or do I go? If I stay, perhaps I am fulfilling what God is asking of me. Perhaps I can truly bless these people here who now more than ever need to feel God's presence and grace. But if I stay, I will be branded a traitor and I too will become a target to the, the kingdom of the king. So they had to make a decision about standing up for what they thought they were called to do and be or falling back and letting the way of the world decide who had access to God's grace. Now those Anglican priests that stayed, that stood, they laid the foundation for our liturgical cousins, the Episcopalians. But other decisions were being made. When the news of the rebellion of the colonies reached England, there was an Anglican priest there too, John Wesley. And he had had a brief encounter, but a poignant and transformative one here in the colonies in Savannah, Georgia. And he had a place in his heart for the American colonists. And he thought to himself, it cannot be righteous to deprive them of the gifts and the connectivity of the church. It cannot be the will of God that they cannot have communion. That when they want to be baptized or to baptize their precious children, that they would not have that opportunity. 
And so he did something truly radical with his power, position, and authority. He laid his hands upon Thomas Koch and Francis Asbury and ordained them the first Methodist bishops. And they traveled to a place that they had not known to love and serve a people that they didn't know, but that they were already in love with because of John's willingness to place the colonists who were now independent in their hearts and on their minds so that their spirits might be intertwined. That is part of our independent story as Methodists. And we who are United Methodists that have descended through the days, who have come from that illustrious, passionate beginning, are those that recognize that it is not easy to segregate what is happening in our secular culture with what is happening in our church. And that even now, all of us have positions of power and authority and privilege that we are given the opportunity to use for the glory of God, to show grace and love to other people. And perhaps, like Esther, to be one of those moments in time when faith took form and forever changed the world. Esther's willingness to stand up for her people led to the holiday that is still celebrated by Jews all over the world known as Purim. And that holiday is when they celebrate that Esther chose to stand up for them. She risked herself. She risked not only her status as queen, she risked her life in order to save a group of people, some of whom she would never know and some of whom would never know her. But because of the pushing that Mordecai gave her, which is why my figure of Mordecai is shoving Esther, <laughs> go, do this. How many times in our lives have we had somebody who loved us so much that they pushed us to go forward? They pushed us out into the world. They pushed us to claim and name and take possession of that which is so empowering within us. Whether it is our ability to do things or our voice or the way that we would live in the world, they have pushed us past our comfort zone. They have challenged us and they were able to do it because of the relationship that they had cultivated with us. And for some of us, we need to be Mordecai. We need to be those that are willing to push those that we love, that we can see such wonderful presence and power in. We need to push them to use it, to claim it, as John Wesley would say, to take thou the authority, to go forth and truly be the blessing that they have been blessed to be, and to claim that place in the history of not just the world, but of God's church. Others of us are like Esther. We have been richly blessed. And we are in a position perhaps to stay very isolated in that blessing. And it's comfortable, and it's safe, and we feel secure. Do we really want to risk all that we have worked for, all that we have struggled to attain? Are we really being asked to go forth and put ourselves on the line? Isn't that what we're celebrating today as a nation? That there were people, and there still are people, who value the principle of liberty and freedom 
so much that not only would they fight for it, but they will still defend it to this day. We are a people under the auspices of Jesus Christ who are being asked to use what we have and who we are to be the next Esthers in this world, to look and see and discover people, what they need and what we can provide, what we can take that blesses us and share it to bless them. This is our opportunity. And God thought it was so important that God kept a holy place, an entire book dedicated to the legacy of Esther. I can't imagine the fear she felt when she opened the doors to the inner throne room. I can't imagine how much she must have quaked with every step toward the king, seeing the guards ready at any moment to strike her down. And maybe that reminded her that even though she had been so safe and secure in the palace, enjoying incredible, unparalleled luxury, that her people were waiting for the day when their neighbors would strike them down. Her people were living in fear, wondering if they, as exiled people, would also be destroyed. And the children and the grandchildren that they had struggled to raise, that they too would be wiped out from this world. And maybe that's what gave her the courage to keep going, to keep going until she stood before the king. And all that she is and all that she had, she put on the line so that others might be free, free from the threat of death, free from the threat of incredible, atrocious violence. For what? Because they're a different religion? because they worship a different God, because they don't do things exactly like their neighbors. She changed the world. And it's quite possible that every moment of it, she didn't want to go, and she didn't want to do it. And every moment she doubted. But what would keep her going forward? It's what Mordecai said to her. People need you. People need you. You are in this place and people need you. They didn't need her to rain down riches from the palace walls. They didn't need her to send glorious silken clothing. They didn't need her to host a feast. They needed her to stand up and speak and act for them. They needed a voice. And in Esther, God found a vessel. And he used her to save those people. Just like God used John Wesley and those rebellious Anglican priests. Just like God has continued to use Christians through the ages. And we might not ever have some glorious book named after us, we might not ever get the recognition that, quite frankly, probably is deserved by a number of you for all of the things that you have so selflessly done, not in this lifetime. But who might be inspired and touched and transformed by what you say and do? Might that be the next 
John Wesley? Might that be the next Queen Esther? All of us have been given incredible power and authority and position because we bear the name of Jesus Christ and we have been given a piece of God's self, the Holy Spirit. We can do all things. And knowing, knowing that we will be asked within our lifetime to take those opportunities and to use who we are and what we have, God has given us this beautiful, inspiring relationship of Mordecai, who held Esther accountable and who pushed her beyond where she felt safe and secure. And for Esther, who because she knew and loved Mordecai, listened, responded, and chose a different path than she ever would have picked for herself. All of us are going to have that day. All of us are going to have our Esther moment. All of us are going to have our Mordecai moment. And fortunately, because of Jesus Christ, we can do both. We can push and we can go. And may we be encouraged to do just this, because in a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to eat a meal that allows us to do just that. Knowing what was happening to him, what was going to be his legacy, Jesus wanted to make sure that we wouldn't have to starve ourselves for three days and deprive ourselves of drink. He chose to feed us. Feed us himself, his love, his forgiveness, his willingness. Because just like Esther, he chose to walk the path to Calvary. Like Esther, he chose to bear our fears, our sins, and even our death. And that's who we serve. We serve a legacy of Esther, and we serve a Lord of Jesus Christ. May you be reminded when your moment comes, and may you embrace that, hearing God once more affirm who you are and what you have is a blessing. So go and bless others. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.